Friday trading saw major gains in all major stock market averages to close out a holiday shortened week. The Dow Jones Industrial Average rose 1.19% on Friday, the S&P 500 doing much better than that, up 1.5% on the day. The big winner was the NASDAQ, which was up over 2% on the day, and we had a very strong close to a holiday shortened week. Before we get started with the podcast, hit the follow button, subscribe to the channel on Spotify to help us hit our subscriber goals. But much of the action in the stock markets later on in the week had to do with the European Central Bank on Thursday announcing a 75 basis point interest rate hike taking its benchmark deposit rate 2.75%. Prior to the interest rate announcement, the European Central Bank had interest rates at zero and several months ago had interest rates negative for the economy. But as we continue to see inflation pressures mount in the Eurozone from rising gas and natural gas prices, the European Central Bank has had a lot of pressure on it to raise rates to fight inflation, despite the major slowdown in their economy. And so we see they're but they're much further behind the market cycle than the Federal Reserve currently is, but they're going to quickly get caught back up because as bad as inflation is in the United States, gas inflation is much worse in the Euro- Eurozone. Gas prices are about $6 per barrel higher in the Eurozone than they are in the United States. But this basis point rate hike came as a surprise to the markets. And so that caused the dollar to sell off and it caused for the euro. And also we saw strength in the British pound upon the death of Queen Elizabeth. But the action in the currency markets led to a weaker dollar overall, which then trickled into the U.S. stock market and relieved some pressure of a stronger dollar, which allowed stocks to rise further from there. But it was a very, very rip-roaring rally on Friday. Now, we did get some economic data that came out during the week, as well as a speech from Fed Chair Jerome Powell. But on Tuesday, we got Final Services PMI and ISM Services PMI, both of which came in around the expectations. The Final Services PMI missed by expectations slightly, and ISM Services PMI beat expectations slightly. So there was not much moves in the market on that news. On Wednesday, we did get the trade balance. Now, most people in the markets don't pay attention to the trade balance anymore because everyone expects the United States to run massive trade deficits anyway. And so it's not really news when these massive trade deficits are released. But it is very important to look at them. We had a trade balance, a trade deficit for the month of $70.6 billion dollars. So the trade deficit in total for the first eight months of the year is now $691.8 billion deficit that we are running. And we are on pace currently to break $1 trillion in a trade deficit for 2022. We'll see how the next four months come in. But whether we break a trillion or not, the fact that we're even close to a trillion dollar a year trade deficit is evidence of a very weak U.S. economy with no output or capacity to produce output to produce goods within the economy. Now, Thursday, we got the consumer credit numbers month over month. There, the expectation was that there was going to be an expansion of $31.5 billion in consumer credit. Instead, we came in under that number at only 23.8. 
So we see that consumer spending on credit had slowed down for the month. Now, keep in mind, last month we got a very big number of 40.2 billion. And so this was probably just a slight pullback. Again, later in the summer months, you probably had less people taking vacations, less people uh, going to events. People are winding down the summer. And in a lot of cases, the last two weeks, in a lot of states, people are back to school. So we saw less spending for the month. But again, we continue to see consumer credit numbers pick up by substantial amounts every single month. Again, this is the change in the total value of outstanding consumer credit that requires installment payments. So credit cards, auto loans, personal loans, uh, anything like that. Now, we also got unemployment claims for the, month, uh, for the week. We added 222,000 initial unemployment claims. Again, that's where the number has been coming in on jobless claims for the past five weeks now. So we continue to see the labor market is not having huge declines yet, but it continues to have very, very steady declines as you continue to see people file for unemployment for the first time. Thursday, we also got news out of China, the CPI numbers year over year and the PPI numbers year over year. So the inflation data coming out of China, much better than the rest of the world. There, we added 2.5% to consumer price costs and we added only 2.3% to producer costs in China year over year for the past month. So again, inflation is an, a problem in all major economies across the globe, except for China. Lastly, on Friday, we got final wholesale inventories month over month. There we were looking for a 0.8% increase. Instead, we got only a 0.6% increase. So inventories turned over slightly faster than expected for the month which again means that businesses probably were able to pass on higher costs to consumers because their sales were increasing. Now, of course, that could also mean that businesses did drop their prices, which could have led to more sales for the month. But if the consumer is strong enough to continue to keep spending on consumer credit, then that means that businesses are going to have room to pass on added costs to their customers because the consumer continues to not slow down aggressively on their spending. And again, that is because con uh, conditions in the credit markets remain too loose and there is too much available credit for consumers to be able to continue to spend. The Thinking Long and Short podcast is brought to you by Perfect Spiral. Joe Miglio and John McCarthy take you on a football journey as they discuss the sport in depth. This 365, 24-7 football podcast discusses everything NFL. Off-season, draft, rumors, training camp, fantasy football, and of course, the season. Subscribe to the channel Perfect Spiral on Spotify. Now, sometimes even more important than looking at economic data is actually listening to earnings calls that come out with some prominent companies in the market. We did not get too many releases of economic data this past week. We also did not have many big earnings calls this week, but one prominent earnings call that we did get that's very important was coming out of Kroger. Now, Kroger beat on the top and bottom lines, and they were able to improve their outlook moving forward into the rest of the year and into 2023. The stock rose 7% immediately after they reported earnings, but again, they are doing really well because they are a low-budget grocery chain and so they're continuing to pick up market share, and that is why they are seeing a outperformance 
in their business relative to expectations. Most notably, the CEO mentioned on the earnings call, there was over a 10% rise in generic uh, brand label product purchases. So consumers, much like Walmart reported a few weeks ago, consumers are buying a lot more generic products as opposed to the brand name items in the stores. They also saw much bigger coupon usage, and they also saw that, again, they took market share. But they see that people are continuing to stretch their budgets. They're stretching to make ends meet because they're struggling with inflation and the economy is slowing. Real wages are not keeping up with inflation. And so, therefore, people are having to stretch more to make ends meet. That means like stores like Kroger, Walmart, Costco are continuing to take market share from the more expensive stores, the more expensive grocery chains and big box retailers, because, again, consumers don't have the money to be able to afford the high end products anymore. And again, we continue to see inflation hurt the lower middle class and the lower half of the middle class the most. And that is why these stores are doing so well. Again, Kroger was up 7% on its earnings and they again, improve their outlook for the rest of 2022 and for 2023. One shocker was that we did get DocuSign reported earnings. Their revenue rose 22% more than expected. They reported revenues of $622 million versus the expectation of $602 million. They also improved forward guidance. The stock popped 22% on the earnings release. This is one of the more heavily shorted stocks in the market. Again, it is in the ARK Innovation Fund. It doesn't have any earnings yet. So this is one of the more speculative part of the markets. But again, as I mentioned a little earlier, most of the speculative stocks really rallied hard this past week, especially on Friday. But if you look at some of the more speculative stocks in the market, it's obvious that the action on Thursday and Friday, a lot of it could have been derived from short covering. People that were short these stocks had to come in and buy them. There was a bit of a short squeeze going on in the markets in general, again, from the surprise rate hike in the eurozone, which led the dollar to be weaker, which then, again, allowed stocks to rise a little bit on some relieved pressure from dollar weakness. But again, looking at the more speculative stocks, it's obvious that this rally is probably going to be short-lived. And again, we're rallying again off the lows, so it's another bear market rally, but the markets still continue to be down well on the year. But look at some of the stocks and the way they performed this week. Tesla up 7.6% on the week. Sunrun up 19%. MicroStrategy up 17% on the week and 11% on Friday alone. You know, Bitcoin had a big move Thursday into Friday, was up about 10%. Again, the speculative assets were rising the most, and that's why I believe a lot of people were short and they came in and covered. That's why we're seeing these huge rallies in these speculative stocks. DoorDash was up 10% on the week. Opendoor up 7% on the week. Square also up 7% on the week, 5% on Friday. And the ARK Innovation Fund was up 6% on the week, 4% on Friday alone. So again, the most speculative parts of the market were rallying the hardest. And if you look at the overall markets, the S&P 500 was up 1.8% on the week, the NASDAQ up 1.7% on the week. And it's interesting that the NASDAQ isn't outperforming on days when the market is going up. On Friday, the NASDAQ outperformed by about a half a percent, but overall, the NASDAQ is not overperforming 
the S&P 500. So by taking an additional risk by going into the NASDAQ, which is a more risky part of the markets, you're not really getting rewarded here. And I think that reflects a lot of the bearish sentiment that is still out there in the markets. And that should show people that there is more room to go to the downside in this bear market and that this is simply a bear market rally. Speaking of, again, the more risky stocks, the ARK Innovation was up 5% on the week. But again, are you really getting paid for the enormous amount of risk you're taking to only outperform the markets by a few percent when on the downside you can underperform the markets dramatically? I don't think it's worth taking the risk being in these ARK Innovation names, and I'll cover that a little more in a second. But if we look at the way bonds traded over the week, the TLT, which is the long-term government bond fund, down 1.25% on the week. And again, that's because the Federal Reserve has now become a seller of bonds. So not only is the biggest owner of bonds in the world selling, but a lot of traders are hesitant to jump into bonds because they don't want to buy ahead of that selling coming out of the Federal Reserve. But look at the year-to-date uh, performance of each major stock market index. And if you go to the highest risk portion of the curve, that would be the NASDAQ. But to go even to a riskier portion, again, I harp on the ARK Innovation Fund. But if you're in the ARK Innovation Fund, that fund is down 54% year to date since the start of 2022. But if you move into the NASDAQ, the NASDAQ is down 23.5% year to date since the start of 2022. Moving over to the S&P 500, that is down only 15% on the year. And then if you go over to the Dow Jones, which is the most value-oriented part of the market, that index is only down just over 12% on the year. So again, we see as we go deeper and deeper onto the risk curve, taking more risk, there, there is a lot more downside there. And the more risky stocks have been clobbered, but the value-oriented stocks tend to hold up pretty well in this environment. Again, if you look at the S&P 500 and the Dow Jones, they're only down 15 and 12% respectively, when meanwhile, the NASDAQ and the ARK funds are down 23.5% and 54% respectively. Now, what's more interesting, though, is how gold has performed and how bonds have performed over the past uh, several months, dating back to the start of the year. Gold on the year is now down only 5.6%. So to the extent that you've owned gold, rather than owning stocks being in the S&P 500 or even the NASDAQ, you're doing much better. Your money is holding up much better in gold than it would have been in the S&P 500 or especially in the NASDAQ. And even if you look at the Dow Jones, the Dow Jones is down 12%, more than twice the amount that gold is down, despite gold having a very rough time of it in the past couple of months. And then if we look to the, the long-term bond fund, the TLT, the TLT is interestingly enough down 25% year to date. So if you were trying to avoid stock market risk by not being in the NASDAQ or not being in the S&P 500 or not being in the Dow Jones and you went into bonds, you've actually lost 25% of your money. So you would have actually been better off having bought stocks in the Dow Jones and the, having bought the S&P 500. And if you bought the S&P 500 at the start of 2022, you're down 15%. But if you bought the long-term bond fund and everyone keeps asking me about bonds and why should I not buy bonds here? Interest rates are going up. 
shouldn't I buy bonds now because they're paying a much higher interest rate now than they were a year ago? Well, again, if you didn't buy stocks, if you bought stocks, you would have been down 15% on the S&P 500. If you instead chose to go quote unquote risk-free into bonds, those bonds are down 25% in just eight months. And so again, I continue to harp on the fact that bonds are return-free risk because even though the interest rates on bonds are double what they were 12 months ago, they are still highly negative because they are much lower than the rate of inflation. But because the Federal Reserve has now become a major seller of bonds, there is a lot of price pressure going down on bonds, right? The higher interest rates go on newly issued bonds, the less valuable prior issued bonds are. And so therefore, there's a lot of interest rate risk. There's a lot of inflation risk in bonds, and it's a very risky asset to hold. You have to get out of the old mentality that that's a way to take risk off the table. It's actually a means of putting risk on the table. Again, you would have been much better at the start of 2022 buying gold than you would have been buying the ARK fund, the NASDAQ, the S&P 500, the Dow Jones, or long-term government bonds. Now, again, on the week, one of the major catalysts for the big move in stocks was the move in the euro and the pound sterling against the U.S. dollar. Because as the euro and sterling strengthened against the dollar, the dollar was weaker on currency markets. And again, a weaker dollar, all else being equal, relieves pressure on stock prices and allows them to go higher. But that was also what caused the rally in gold because of a weaker dollar. We saw some relief on gold. Now, gold did not make a major rally. It rallied from about 1700 and it finished the week at 17 spot 17. So we still didn't see a major move in the price of gold, but it is holding that support level of 1700 very well. Now, if it does test the 1675 lows, it could go lower from there. But again, it's holding up relatively well, and it's possible that the dollar index has now peaked because, again, the euro central bank is getting uh, getting more closer to fighting inflation and trying to get interest rates back higher. So that means the euro is going to continue to rise against the dollar now, most likely. And so that will help keep the dollar index down. And it's likely the dollar index could start falling from here. But again, with the relief from a weaker dollar, we also saw oil rise on the week. We closed the week out at 85 spot, 82 per barrel. Now, we started the week higher than that, but intraday week, we got as low as about $81 per barrel was the lowest I saw. So we did make a nice recovery off the lows. Again, supply remains completely constrained for the oil markets. We did get that there was inventory of 8.8 .8 million barrels of oil this week, which was much higher than last week's inventory. But again, a lot of that is coming from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, and a lot of that is going to run out very quickly. But there is a huge supply problem of oil still in the markets. And again, that's why oil continues to rally off of every single low, again, closing the week at $85 per barrel. But now the euro and the British pound are starting to trade higher. Now, they both surrendered some of their overnight gains Thursday into Friday, but they are both now significantly higher against the U.S. dollar than they have been. Now, the U.K., they are also behind the inflation curve, so they're starting to raise interest rates as well, but they have some catch-up to do on fighting inflation, as does the European Central Bank, 
relative to the Federal Reserve. But the, the rally, the catalyst in the rally in the British pound was more due to the death of Queen Elizabeth, brought some turbulence to the currency markets on Friday. But the euro is rallying simply because now the European Central Bank is showing a much more uh, heavy uh, set to fighting inflation. And so, again, the reason the, the dollar has been rising is because everyone expects the Fed to fight inflation. Now investors have to start to expect that the European Central Bank is going to fight inflation, which is going to probably make the euro more valuable against the dollar than it has been in the last several months. And so, again, therefore, that means a weaker dollar, a weaker dollar index, and that could give room to gold and oil to start getting back closer to where their all time highs were from a couple of years ago and oil most more specifically from several months ago. So, again, this is not going to put uh, to relieve much pressure on stocks. It led to a rally that was more from short covering on Friday, but I expect that rally to be short lived. But I expect gold to continue to hold up very well here, as well as the price of oil. But the dollar index is now trading back below 109. It got as high as 110 spot 50. Uh, that was earlier in the month. But again, it's possible it could have topped out there. Uh, I don't know if it's going to start reaching new highs. Um, but again, I think it's possible that all the future rate hikes from the Federal Reserve are already priced into the dollar. And so the dollar probably is more likely to fall from here than it is to rise. Now, if we look at the bond market, though, bonds, again, continue to sell off this week, down one and a half, uh, down one point two five percent on the week. The U.S. 10 year Treasury now yields three spot three one five percent, which is at multi month highs. And again, we continue to see weakness in the bond market, but. We continue to see weakness in the bond market, not only when stocks are rallying, but also when stocks are falling. So even when stocks are falling, we don't see investors taking uh, any flight to safety into bonds. Instead, we see the flight to safety is still going to dollars for the most part. But again, the investors that, that are not buying bonds are not stepping in because they don't want to buy ahead of the Federal Reserve selling all of those bonds. And so there's going to be a lot more pressure for the bond market to trade lower from here. Now, on Thursday afternoon, we got the release of the Fed's balance sheet numbers. Again, we get those every Thursday afternoon. But I mentioned last week on the podcast that from August 24th to September, August 31st, the Federal Reserve did actually start shrinking its balance sheet a little bit. It shrank its balance sheet from $8.85 trillion dollars in assets to $8.826 trillion in assets, which is not that big of a, a sell-off of bonds, but it's much bigger than what they've been doing in the past uh, several months. Now, th this past week, from August 31st to uh, September 7th, they only sold uh, $4 billion worth of bonds. So they only took the balance sheet from $8.826 trillion to $8.822 trillion, so they only had a 0.05% reduction in their balance sheet over the past week. Again, they barely sold any bonds. And so we see all this weakness in the bond market and the Fed is barely selling. So once the Fed actually starts to ramp up their selling of bonds, whenever they do decide to finally uh, get with the program, markets are going to head much lower from here. And if we look at a chart, and this chart is very telling, by the way. 
But if we look at a chart of the Fed balance sheet from 2010 versus the S&P 500, we see that every time the Fed balance sheet has increased, the S&P 500 has traded higher. It is amazing if you look at this chart, and I put it in the newsletter if you want to go check it out in the newsletter, but it's amazing how correlated the Fed's, the growing of the Fed's balance sheet is with the growth in the S&P 500. Now, the reason for this is because when the Fed increases its balance sheet and does quantitative easing, what it is doing is it is providing liquidity into the markets. So what does that mean exactly? Well, when, the, when not enough investors want to take risk by owning stocks and they are in bonds, if the Federal Reserve starts buying bonds by printing money and providing liquidity, what they in turn do is they get interest rates to go lower. The lower interest rates go, the more risk appetite there is for investors to take risks, to go into the stock market, buy speculative investments. And so what the providing of liquidity does for the markets is it gets asset prices to go up. That is the very purpose of quantitative easing. So there's an old expression, you don't fight the Fed. And the whole purpose of that is if the Fed is trying to do quantitative easing to purposely drive asset prices up by getting investors to step into the stock market and take more risk, then what you don't want to do is you don't want to sell stocks. You don't want to be short stocks. Even if the economic data is worsening, you don't want to be short stocks if the Fed is providing liquidity to the markets. Don't fight the Fed. Well, it stands to reason that if the Fed is now uh, starting to do quantitative tightening, you don't want to fight the Fed on the way down either. So if they are selling bonds now and therefore removing liquidity from the markets, that means that interest rates are going to start rising. And we see in the bond market, they already are starting to rise. That means that there is going to be less risk appetite for investors to buy stocks. And instead, they're going to show a preference to hold cash, to buy short term treasuries, um, to buy longer term treasuries, because a lot of investors still don't understand how bad this inflation problem is going to get. But as long as that risk appetite to not own stocks is not is going away, then people are not going to buy stocks. And so, again, if the Fed balance sheet going up was causing the stock market to go up, which all the evidence shows that's the case, if the Fed's balance sheet is going to start going down, then the market has to continue to go down from here. And that is why I continue to pound the table against the ARK Innovation Fund, because that is the fund that is going to suffer the worst from this balance sheet reduction when the Fed does it, if they do it. Because again, higher interest rates are very bad for stocks, but they're very bad for the more risky type stocks. That is why when you look at the Dow Jones compared to the S&P 500 compared to the NASDAQ, the Dow Jones is down the least this year. The S&P 500 is down uh, more than the Dow Jones and the NASDAQ is down more than the S&P. As you go further out on the risk curve into the more risky stocks, interest rates harm those stocks the most and there are no more risky stocks in the market than what is comprised in the ARK Innovation Fund. And it's also very important to understand that the health of the ARK Innovation Fund and a lot of speculative stocks is derived from people investing in the markets.
because if you look at the amount of money losing companies in the market, now I went back and looked at the chart from 2008, but there is right now a record number of money losing companies in the market. And over the past few years, the amount, the percentage of companies that are losing money that went on the markets on an IPO and went public were hitting record highs. So in 2021, 72% of all companies that IPO'd and went onto the stock market were losing money, had never generated any profits, and were operating at a loss. And this was never the case 40, 30, 20 years ago. You, if you went public in the 70s or the 80s, you couldn't do so unless your company was already extremely profitable and you had proven the business model out. But with interest rates having been so low for so long, that is no longer the case in the markets. But if you're a company that is losing money, you are only able to pay your workers based on the investments that you have coming into the business, either from selling stock or from issuing bonds into the corporate credit market and borrowing money. Because if you have no profits with, your, with, your, uh, with which you're operating your business with, you have no profits with, with which to pay your employees. And so a large amount of these money losing companies, and again, most of them are in the ARK Innovation Fund, the only way they're able to pay their employees is they borrow money to fund their operations or they sell stock to raise cash to fund their operations. Now, again, if that liquidity is being removed from the markets, then that means there's going to be a lot of pressure on those stocks and a lot of pressure on the employment market, the labor markets moving forward. And that's one of the reasons I know that it's going to be very difficult for the Federal Reserve to shrink their balance sheet without causing a huge recession. The idea of a soft landing in that sense is not possible because by doing this balance sheet reduction, they are going to destroy a lot of jobs. Again, 72% of all companies that IPO'd last year are unprofitable and won't be able to continue to fund their operations and to keep their workers employed if all this liquidity goes away. So again, that's going to put a lot of upward pressure on unemployment rates. But again, that's going to be very bad news as well for the ARK Innovation Fund. So again, the ARK Innovation Fund is down 54% on the year, but it's not going to get back to its all-time highs anytime soon, if ever at all. And speaking of the ARK Innovation Fund, you know, I've been continuing to see inflows go into this fund all year long. You know, you had people coming in thinking they were buying at a discounted price, buying the dip, because again, the fund is down so much on the year. But again, you can't anchor to past prices that were occurring in the stock market bubble last year because those prices should have never existed in the first place. But again, liquidity is starting to be removed ever so slightly. Again, the Federal Reserve, as I just covered, has barely shrinking their balance sheet at all. But this is actually caused for the first major flow of outflows from the ARC fund this year. So the ARC fund right now is, is about $8 billion dollars. And it just saw $803 million of outflows in August, which was the biggest outflow since last September. So again, you have liquidity, liquidity is being removed. And so investors have less of a risk appetite, which means they're going to start selling their holdings in the ARK Innovation Fund. They're going to start selling a lot of the stocks that they may own that happen to be in the ARK Innovation Fund. 
And believe me, that fund has a long way to go down from here, especially if the Federal Reserve starts ramping up the removal of liquidity by doing quantitative tightening. And again, that's how they're going to fight inflation. But it's my thesis that they're going to be able to do it enough to kill the economy and kill the labor market. But they're not going to be able to get rates high enough to actually effectively fight inflation. Because again, historically, we have never had inflation move above 5% and then simultaneously come back to down to 2% or less without overnight lending rates going above the current consumer price index. So that would imply that overnight lending rates would have to go above at least 9% to stop inflation. Again, we are at 2.5% on the overnight lending rate and interest rates on bonds are only slightly above 3% on the 10-year treasury and yet the markets are already getting killed. But again, the one thing that the markets have to hang their hats on is the consumer continues to spend. And I keep harping on this, but the only reason the consumer continues to spend is because they continue to open more credit cards, take out more personal loans, take out auto loans. They just had a bunch of their student loans forgiven. The student loan forgiveness plan is going to affect about 46 million Americans. So that it's the increased levels of debt that is allowing consumers to continue to spend. And so that's why I think corporate earnings are going to hold up somewhat well, because I think that corporations by and large are going to be able to pass higher costs onto their consumers, at least the corporations that sell products and services that people need. But again, spending tends to get much higher during this time of year. You know, we have uh, sports season. They just football just started. This is conference season. A lot of business professionals are traveling and doing conferences at this time of year. We're back to work, back to school. There's upcoming holidays. So there's a lot of consumer spending that does take place during this time of year, which again means that a lot of pressure is going to be placed on the CPI and on inflation because as consumers continue to spend more money and the velocity of money and credit picks up, businesses can raise their prices and sell more products. And so therefore, they can increase their profitability. And that's why I think corporate earnings, for the most part, are going to hold up relatively well. But that's the only thing the markets have to hang their hats on. But even though corporate earnings are going to hold up, business multiples and stock multiples are going to come down because, again, of the removal of liquidity from the Fed, that's going to cause less investment to go into stocks, which means that stock multiples have to come down even if the earnings hold up. Now, if earnings for some reason don't hold up, that's even more bad news for the stock market. But again, I find it very hard to believe that we're at the lows for this market. We probably have a much longer way to go from here. The S&P 500 is probably going to go down at least another 10 or 15% before the Fed caves in and starts reversing and goes back to quantitative easing and stimulating the economy. But with that, I just want to cover the yield curve because one of the biggest signs for recession, and we are officially in a recession, but the recession is going to continue to get more severe as we move into the fall and winter months. But one of the most accurate symbols for predicting recession in financial markets throughout history has been looking at the yield curve. And whenever the yield curve inverts, that is a clear sign that we are either in recession or that a recession is coming. Now, the yield curve has been inverted for quite some time now, but it, the inversions continue to get worse and worse. Now, what an inverted yield curve means, for those that don't know, is it means that shorter maturity debt is yielding a higher interest rate than longer maturing debt. Now, 
if you think of this intuitively, if you had if you were to make a one year loan and a 30 year loan to two entities that had the same risk profile, you should get paid a higher percentage of interest on the longer loan because money has a time value. It's better to have $100 now than it is to have $100 30 years from now. Because if you have $100 now, you can invest it. And in 30 years, you've generated a return and you have much more than $100. So because money has a time value, you are supposed to get compensated for a, a more for a longer duration loan. But that is not the case when the yield curve inverts. But when the yield curve inverts, what that means is there are less people buying stocks and buying short-term debt instruments, and there are much more people buying long-term government bonds. And so that is causing bond prices on the long end to go down and bond interest rates to, to go up. But again, when the yield curve inverts like this, it shows that investors have a very, very bearish look on the markets, on the economy, and the yield curve has been inverted for quite some time now. In fact, if you look at rates on government bonds and T-bills, if you look at the three-month T-bill, it yields 3%. The six-month and 12-month T-bills yield 35 and 3.6%. When meanwhile, a government bond of 10 years only yields 3.3%. So right now, if you buy a six-month government bond, you're getting a yield of an annualized yield of 3.5%. But if you buy a 10-year government bond, you only get 3.3%. So that means that nobody is going to, I mean, why would you buy a 10-year bond to get 3.3% when you can buy a six-year bond and get 3.5% makes no sense. But what that means also is that investors still expect inflation to come back down closer to 2% and stay that way for the prolonged period of time for the future. Because again, you when you loan money out and you're getting a return, you also have to bake inflation into that return. So if you loan out money for a year and you collect 3.5% uh, in interest, but during that same year, inflation was 8.5%, you have a negative rate of return of 5% because you gained 3.5% uh, nominally, but that money is worth 8.5% less than it was when you loaned it out. So again, bonds have to start pricing in much longer inflation expectations. That is going to cause bond prices to go down and interest rates to go way up once investors figure out that inflation is here to stay for the long term. Also, again, you have the Federal Reserve is about to start selling more bonds. That's going to put downward pressure on bond prices and upward pressure on interest rates. So again, bonds are return-free risk. I can't say it enough. Now, the week ahead, we have Oracle and Adobe reports earnings. There are no other notable earnings. We're out of earnings season fully now. Starbucks also has an investor day coming up. Um, but not really any notable earnings from companies. Oracle and Adobe are important because they are two of the more uh, highly respected tech stocks in the market. Um, and if Oracle and Adobe hit or miss earnings, it could help improve or uh, decrease sentiment in the markets. But what's most important about this week is Tuesday, we get the release of the CPI for the month of August and as well as the core CPI, which strips out food and energy. 
But again, everything driving these markets are interest rates and inflation. The only thing that matters for markets right now is the rate of inflation. Is it slowing down? Is it picking up? How high do interest rates have to go to stop inflation? And what are the effect of high interest rates going to be on the markets? Inflation is the only driver of activity in the markets right now. It holds true for the currency markets, for the commodities markets, for the stock market, and for the bond market. But if you recall, the last CPI release for the month of July came out at 0%. So for the month of July, inflation neither decreased nor increased, but we still have not had a negative month, meaning we still have not had a month where prices have come down since July 2020. And if you recall, that's when we were in the depths of the COVID-19 lockdowns where the entire economy was shut down. So it's been over 27 months since we've had a CPI that has come in negative. So again, the expectation here is that we're going to get a decrease in prices of 0.1%. Wouldn't be much of a decrease at all considering how much prices have risen in the past 27 months. Nonetheless, though, I don't think that's going to be the case. I think the CPI is going to start to come in higher again, and that as we move again into the fall months, we're going to have higher prints on the CPI. Now, the core CPI in July was up 0.3%, and again, that strips out food and energy. So we see that the reason that prices didn't increase in July in the CPI is because food and energy prices came down. But again, we see inflation is sticking in other places in the economy. And yes, oil prices are going to go up and down. They're based on supply and demand. Same thing with a lot of agricultural commodities like corn, wheat, soybeans, and what have you. But there's a lot of prices in the economy that once they rise, they never go back down. Wages are one example. Rents are another example. But once wages increase, they never go back down. So once, for example, McDonald's starts paying their workers $16 an hour, it's not like the following year they're going to start hiring people again at $15 or $14 an hour. It's not like they're going to go to their workers and give them a decrease in pay, right? So once wages go up, wages stay up. And wages are a big input cost for most businesses in the economy. And so if most businesses are experiencing much higher costs for a big portion of their operating costs, well, they are going to continue to raise their prices, especially if interest rates are not going high enough to stop people from borrowing money because demand is not going to go down. And if demand does not go down, then businesses can continue to raise their prices and get away with it. So again, the Federal Reserve has to work much harder, as does the ECB and the UK central bank and central banks around the world, to control inf inflation by creating demand destruction by letting interest rates rise substantially from here. But the problem is they're not going to do that because doing so is going to cause for a very severe long-term uh, recession. And that is why you don't want to let inflation get out of control in the first place, because once inflation starts, it takes an awful lot of pain to get it to stop. Now, on Wednesday, we're also going to get the producer price index month over month. Uh, again, very important for the driving of the markets because everything in the markets is about inflation. The consumer price index shows what happened with inflation last month. The producer price index is more of a better forecast for what's going to happen with prices moving into the future months. But last month, we saw a 5% decrease in producer prices. 
Other than that, though, again, you would have to go back to July 2020 to see another decrease in the producer price index. And of course, that excludes food and energy. The last time we saw a drop in the core PPI, which strips out food and energy, uh, was in July 2020. And again, that was when oil was clobbered because of the worldwide lockdowns. Thursday, we're going to get core retail sales, Empire State Manufacturing Index, and unemployment claims, as well as import prices, capacity utilization, industrial production, business inventories. And then on Friday, we're going to get European inflation data, as well as the consumer sentiment and inflation expectations. So we have a much busier week ahead, not necessarily earnings wise, but economic data wise. We're going to see how the euro and the pound continue to trade against the dollar. I expect that if the euro strength keeps up against the dollar, gold will keep rising. We'll see if this bear market rally that happened on the end of Thursday and Friday has any legs. But again, I think it's going to be short lived. And personally, I would sell any rally here and use it as a opportunity to get out at higher prices for the most part, because, again, most stocks are going to get clobbered. Of course, most of them being on the uh, further end of the risk curve, like the ARK Innovation Fund or the NASDAQ or S&P 500. Of course, it's hard to sell stocks, though, and go into dollars when you know that dollars are getting less valuable by the day. So again, I still continue to believe the value stocks are where you need to be. The stocks that sell products and services that people need, that have pricing power to pass higher costs on to customers. These stocks are going to be able to pass higher costs on to customers because as I talked about, there is no demand destruction in the economy because interest rates still remain far too low. But again, there still is a very high amount of risk in tech stocks and growth stocks and the NASDAQ and in the S&P 500. But to wrap up, we need to keep a close eye on the bond market. Any weakness there could indicate a pickup in bond sales from the Fed, which will drive interest rates higher and really should impact the ARK funds and the tech stocks in general. The NASDAQ is likely headed much lower from here, either due to higher interest rates, higher inflation, or both, quite frankly. But we continue to see the, the value-oriented stocks hold up very well. We saw firsthand this week how Kroger continues to benefit from the economy weakening as they continue to take market share. That means they have more profits to keep raising their dividends, helping their shareholders to avoid inflation. Now, if you want more in-depth analysis on some businesses that could turn into great investments in the coming years, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify and make sure you go to truenorthmarketresearch.substack.com and subscribe to the newsletter I put out. You can subscribe for free, or if you want additional information on financial markets and investment opportunities, you can become a paid subscriber. Uh, I'm running a deal for the next couple of weeks. If you subscribe, become a paid subscriber, it's only $5 a month, and you can get uh, even further discount on an annual subscription. That also gives you access to my personal investment portfolio and how I am managing money for myself and for my clients. And either way, the newsletter is a quick five to 10 minute read. It tells you everything you need to know about what's going on in financial markets and in the investment world. This week was very hectic and I wasn't able to put out as much content on the newsletter, but I'm going to be ramping it up to six newsletters per week. Three will be free edits and then three will be for paid only subscribers as we start the fall season. But the thinking long and short 
Investment Professionals newsletter. It's a tool for financial advisors and for individual investors to stay current on financial market conditions. Investment professionals can use the insightful thoughts provided in the newsletter to keep their clients well-informed and properly positioned to achieve their financial goals. So stay up to date on financial market commentary, investment analysis, and trading thoughts. Subscribe to that newsletter at truenorthmarketresearch.substack.com and hit the follow button on your Spotify to receive our podcast every Sunday.